Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you are thinking, is he going to make this a three-part message? No, there's a, there's a short backstory to that. Uh, but first, introduce myself. Um, I'm Matthew, if I haven't met you. I love getting to serve as one of the pastors here. And last Sunday, we read this same passage. So no, John did not make a mistake. But we only got about halfway through it because there was so much for us to feast on in here uh, by way of the Lord feeding our souls. So thankful that we can linger and have the opportunity to do that. Father, we ask for your help now that we would be faithful hearers and in particular with this passage, doers of your word. Bless this time we pray. Amen. I think that a few people, at least few people I know, uh, have the luxury of sitting around all day and pondering existential questions like, who am I? I was thinking about that this week. Um, the world certainly encourages teens and 20-somethings to, to try whatever looks good or feels good in a, in a quest to discover the real you, right? That's the thinking. But I've noticed that with age, in general, most cases, comes responsibility and finding ways to pay the bills pushes a lot of that self-reflection just to the fringe, fringe of your conscience. And, and by your early 30s, I've noticed that, that most people will answer a question like, who are you? With a quick description of their vocation right? Where they work. So who am I? I'm a programmer, or I'm a lawyer, I'm an electrician, I'm an artist, I'm a teacher, or I'm a, I'm a parent of three kids, five and under, trying not to go insane. That, that's how we answer the who am I question. But friends, there are, there are other answers to the identity question that, that fly below the radar in many cases. They're, they're kind of subconscious. But I would argue they're far more influential than the vocation stuff and actually governing the course of your life. For example, 
Who am I? I'm successful. Or I'm a failure. I'm loved. Or I'm unloved. I'm needed. I'm expendable. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm sick. I'm a victim of injustice. I deserve to be respected. Who am I? I'm always right. <laughs> or I'm always wrong. The, the list just goes on. To, to flesh this out, illustration from my own life, I, I may not walk into the house after work consciously thinking, I am a successful man who deserves to be respected. may not consciously be thinking that. But what if the first question my wife asked me when I hit the kitchen alerts me to something I told her I would do and failed to do? Just hypothetically. Or the first instruction I give one of our children is promptly ignored. And anger begins to rise in my heart. Right? It's just it's like a volcano just murmuring. What's, what's going on in that moment when that anger begins to rise? Well, my identity, my chosen identity, is outing itself. See? What what do I mean by that? Well, deep inside, I like to think of myself as successful. You know? I I like to think of myself as respectable. That's that's who I can feel like I am. And so when failure is exposed or that respect is denied, well, I react with anger in part Because it feels like my wife and kids have formed a criminal syndicate to assault my identity. See. Wasn't that they made me angry. The problem was my my identity was outing itself. But you know, in contrast, what, what if I walked in convinced that I'm a sinner who desperately needs the Lord's mercy? Or what if I What if I walked in convinced I'm a father to whom the Lord has given the incredible privilege of training my children to submit to his loving authority? What if I walked into that kitchen answering the who am I, Williams, question that way? Well, I would argue that sense of self just might have a slight (laughs) impact on what comes pouring out of my heart. See? Every moment of every day, whether you realize it or not, friend, your internal sense of self has a profound influence on how you interpret and respond to everything that's going on around you. Profound influence, okay? You may not feel it. You may not see it. But but we're all living with some sort of answer to the question, Who am I? Even if that answer is, I don't have a clue. I'm confused. And so your life is riddled with confusion and despair. It may be conscious, it may be unconscious, but but we all have some kind of sense of self. It's part of being created in the image of God and what sets us apart from crocodiles. And so the question is not whether you have a sense of self or an identity, but what is it? What's it going to be? Listen, 
only the identity God offers you through faith in Jesus Christ will not crush you or the people around you. Here's why. Because this identity is not something you achieve for yourself on on a performance treadmill. It's, It's a gift. And because it's a gift, it's not an identity that can then be used to to look down on other people because you didn't deserve that identity. It was a gift. And if you're a Christian, let's just cut to the chase, all this talk of identity. What, What is your identity? Well, look at verse 12 to quickly review from last week. Who are you, Christian? This is your identity. Listen, you are chosen, holy, and beloved as a child of God. That that's who you are. Feel the weight of that. You did not earn that, Christian. You did not manufacture that. You did not achieve that. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you cannot lose that. That's a gift. That's why it's not an identity that crushes us. Because as soon as you know, if it's, if it's something you achieve, well, then as soon as you, you got it, you just got to keep working to not lose it, right? That's why it's an identity that, that doesn't elevate us above others. And the only way that we will ever embrace and grow in all these Christian virtues that Paul's talking about here is if we remember our identity and embrace our identity and choose to live out our identity, being, as it were, true to who God created and saved you to be. Think, think about that. The world so often co-ops language that, that actually has a biblical analogy. You know, how often have you heard the, well, just be true to who you are, right? Well, what does scripture do? It, it gives us a new who you are in Christ and then says, now live in a way that's true to that. That's what Colossians 3 is all about. So if you think of these virtues as just a list of behavioral rules, we're going to work through some of them today, you're sunk. I promise you. Okay, if you think of them as suggestions for how to be a better person, you are sunk. If you think of them as marks of maturity reserved for old, really serious Christians about to die, you're sunk. <laughs> okay? They, they, they are none of those things, friends. They're not. Listen, they are how you will live to the degree you embrace the identity Jesus purchased for you at the cost of his own blood. That's what they are. And, and that's what the gospel is all about. I mean, think about it. Why did, why did Jesus live and die and rise from the grave? He did it to give sinners like us a new identity as the people of God. That's what he was after. And, and the gospel, main point of this whole section, said it last week, the gospel that establishes our new identity in Christ both requires and enables a new kind of life in Christ. In other words, when Jesus moves into the house, redefining your identity, Chosen, holy, beloved, child of God, certain attitudes and actions are no longer fitting. They're no longer being true to who you are. They deny who you are in Christ. And a new set of attitudes and actions becomes entirely fitting. Why? Because they confirm and express who you are in Christ. So last Sunday, we camped out on the the virtues in verses 12 and 13. We're going to linger on verses 14 through 17 this morning. Answering this question as Paul walks us through it, what kind of life 
does our identity in Christ require and enable? What kind of life does our identity in Christ require and enable? Okay, Here, Here's the first answer. I was tempted to make this point number four, but I won't for the sake of clarity. We're starting in verse 14. So, what kind of life does our identity in Christ require and enable? First, that we love as a people ruled by the peace of Christ. Verses 14 and 15, we love as a people ruled by the peace of Christ. There is something really striking about this entire list. I didn't say it last Sunday because I wanted to save it for this morning. All these virtues, without exception, are corporate in nature. What does that mean? They're, They're not about how you do you, Christian, over in a little corner by yourself. Did you hear that? They're not about how you do you over in a little corner by yourself. They are what? They, they are all focused on how we relate to one another in the church. They're all about that. So, so the vices the Lord commands us to put off, verses 5 through 11, they're all behaviors that what? So division and disunity. And the virtues the Lord commands us to put on, verses 12 to 17, are all behaviors that sow unity in the body. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because our identity in Christ is not a me and Jesus thing. It's an us and Jesus thing. To to be in Christ is to be part of his body, part of his people, a a union that that we express through membership in the local church. And, And so the behaviors... That, that characterize new life in Christ have everything to do with how we relate to one another as the family of God. Look at verse 14. So Paul says, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, love compels all the other virtues and sustains our practice of them even when it's hard. So what is this love? We, we really have to linger here because our culture could not be more confused when it comes to defining love. So what is this? Well, it's the heart attitude that delights in what God says is good and is devoted to helping all the people around you experience what God says is good. Jonathan Jonathan Lehman summarizes really all the Bible teaches about love when he writes this. Listen, love is affectionately affirming that which is from God in the beloved and giving oneself to seeing God exalted in the beloved. So, So it's both an affirmation and a gift. In other words, if I love you, I will affirm what is from God in you And I will give myself to seeing God glorified in your life. That's love. And and notice something about that definition, friends. It's all about God, (laughs) not you and me. Why not? Why, Why is love not whatever feels good to me or whatever feels good to you? Why is it not that? Well, love for one another... Biblical love involves our feelings. It's an emotion. It's an affection. But it's not ultimately the product of our feelings. It's a gift from God. And it reflects the character of God. 
Why? Because what I feel or what you feel is not the moral standard of the universe. Right? God is. Always will be. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. That he, God, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So where that's present, where Christ-like love is present, where, where all of our, think of the, what this calls us to, where all of our speaking and acting is all about maximizing people's joy in Jesus. That's what love is. Biblical unity and harmony will flourish in the church. I mean, in Christ, back to the identity concept, right? We are one. That's already our identity. So in verse 14, the Lord is what? Admonishing us to love in a way that maintains our unity, lives out our identity, is true to who we are in the way we relate to each other, even in the middle of threats that could divide us from one another. And, and that kind of love, that, that unity-producing, harmony-sustaining kind of love, is only possible when our hearts toward each other, look at verse 15, are ruled, Paul says, by the peace of Christ. Peace of Christ. That's not the warm fuzzies. <laughs> or emotional detachment, like, like, how are you doing? It seems like there's just a lot of hard things going on, conflict around you. And I'm great, man. I'm just living above all that junk. No, it's, it's, not, it's not emotional attachment, okay? Nor is it some kind of abstract shalom or, or concept of, of peace in some way, okay? Paul's talking, when he talks about the peace of Christ, about the sturdy, life-changing reality that it's well with your soul because of the gospel. That's what he's talking about, okay? That the joy of knowing you're right with God because of Jesus, that he's yours and, and you're his, and that you'll get to spend the rest of eternity knowing and enjoying him. So here's how this works, okay? When the peace of God, the joy of peace with God, delight in what God has done for you in Jesus, is the supreme and ruling desire of your heart. When the one thing you want more than anything else is the very thing God has freely granted you through the gospel. Well, then guess what happens when weak and sinful human beings, including those in the church around you, inevitably frustrate other desires you have. Whether that's a desire to be loved or supported Respected, my desire for excellence, my desire for a quiet home, whatever it is, I may be disappointed. I may be deeply hurt. But this is the key. Anger will not rule my heart and destroy my relationships because the peace of Christ is already ruling my heart. See, something is always ruling your heart. There are no empty thrones in your heart. It's not a thing. Something or someone is always sitting on the throne in your heart, acting as king of that hill. 
without fail, whether you see it or not. May what sits on our heart throne, friend, be the peace of Christ. Not lesser desires for lesser things, even good things, that that other people will inevitably fail to satisfy, leaving you bitter and angry. So be honest. What ask yourself what what is what's ruling your heart right now? What's calling the shots? What's what's shaping your emotions more than anything else? What they did to you, what she said to you, how so and so treated you, or who Jesus is, <laughs> what he's done for you, the peace and joy he's granted you, and giving you the gift of himself. When, when, when Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, our greatest desire in every conflict will be to pursue what makes for peace. That's what Paul's saying. We'll be free to love people more and need them less because we're no longer asking them to provide what only peace with God can provide. Being clothed with Christ means loving as a people ruled by the peace of Christ. Point number two, verse 15. It also means being thankful as a people saturated by the word of Christ. Notice the connection. The love was the product of what? Ruled by the peace of Christ. Gratitude, verses 15 and 16, is the product of being saturated with the word of Christ. So look at verse 16 quickly. The the admonition in verse 16 Really, the end of 15, pick up there. And be thankful shows up again at the end of verse 16 with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So so Paul is sandwiching something with two commands to be thankful, to be grateful. In other words, a spirit of gratitude, very clearly here, is not optional for Christians. It's a command. It's not a personality thing or or a luxury reserved for people who are healthy or wealthy. It's it's what God created us to do and redeems us to do, to to give thanks and praise to the one from whom all blessings flow. Think about this. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Or Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, what does he do? Gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so when Paul says, and be thankful, he's not, hear this friend, he's not talking about just looking on the bright side. Or being positive, okay? He's, he's describing the kind of worship that our creator requires and deserves. Let, listen to how Paul describes the essence of, of sin, okay, the, the core problem with the human nature condition in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, what, what's our basic problem as human beings? All of us, apart from Christ. They did not honor him as God or what? Give thanks to him. If 
you were to describe the essence of sin, rebellion against God, would, would you do what Paul does and immediately go to our failure to give thanks? He does that because Godward gratitude is a spiritual matter of life and death. It's not hard to see the command, be thankful. But what I think takes a little bit more digging is how do I get there? (laughs) How do I get there? It's not, not terribly hard to spot, even if you're not a Christian friend, grumbling and complaining. The, the greater challenge is, what is this spiritual root of thankfulness? What, what produces gratitude? What, what enables us to, to keep on giving thanks even when life is really hard instead of grumbling and complaining? Well, the key is found in the middle of verse 16. Look there. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Remember the sandwich? Gratitude on the one side, gratitude in the end. What's the meat in the middle? Because it's always the meat that matters most, right? (laughs) The word of Christ. Okay, that sounds like Christianese religious speak. The word of Christ, what is that? Friend, it's the gospel. The word of Christ is the gospel. It's it's the good news of salvation from the wrath of God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, And listen, that gospel, that good news, is rooted in historical facts. Jesus really did live and die and rise from the grave. But it is not limited to historical facts in the sense that the gospel comes with a host of present implications for your life. Today, examples, who Jesus is and what he's done for you in the gospel has something profound to say about the way we relate as husbands and wives. It says a lot about that. Who Jesus is, what he's done for us has something to say about the way we relate as employees and employers. We're going to get to that next Sunday. Okay, who Jesus is and what he's done for us has something to say about how you relate to your friends, the food you eat, the movies you watch, and, and what you do with every dollar in your wallet. Who Jesus is, what he's done for us in the gospel, has something to say about all of that stuff. So when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he doesn't mean rehearse the historical facts of the gospel until you're blue in the face and are getting bored. (laughs) Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus... No, he did. That's not what he means. He means consider and meditate on and be affected and governed by the glory of Christ, the salvation he's won for you, and, and what that means in every area of your life. That, that's what dwelling in us richly looks like. And, and I'm really grateful, friends. If you don't know this, hear this. And if you're visiting this morning, I'm especially glad you can hear this. One of our seven shared values as a Sovereign Grace Church is being gospel-centered can't be a sovereign grace church if you're not a gospel-centered church. We, we want the person and work of Christ 
to occupy its rightful place in our thoughts, in our affections, and in our actions. To not just be like that thing we affirm on our statement of faith. We, we want the gospel to dwell, as Paul says, richly in us. Because it's the gospel that informs and enables every virtue in the Christian life, including gratitude. I, I love Sam Crabtree's book, Practicing Thankfulness. He writes this, gratitude, what is this gospel-driven gratitude? Is the divinely given spiritual ability to see grace and a corresponding desire to affirm it and its giver as good. Gratitude toward God is thus an indication that a person is spiritually alive and awake and alert. So, so when the word of Christ is dwelling richly in us, what do we do? We remember the death we deserve. We remember the life we have received. We, we remember that, that neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, we see how God works all things, even wicked things like the death of his son for our good and his glory. We, we realize all we have is a gift of grace. And, and the Holy Spirit, so the word of the gospel dwells richly in us, it just begins to open our eyes to, to see undeserved favor from God all around you. you. You know one of the things I fear the most as I go about my normal days? That, that I would have blinders on that never even notice just grace all around my life. Mercy, like undeserved favor all around me, all, all around you. In a good meal or a night of sleep or a working vehicle <laughs> or a faithful spouse who has stayed with you for 40 years or a smiling toddler or a job that provides for your needs and, and thousands of other gifts of grace that can just go unnoticed and, and pass us by. Here's the bottom line. If you want to practice thankfulness, and, and may our church friends be known for thankfulness, do this, okay? Meditate on the goodness of God, radiating outward from the greatest gift he has ever given, Jesus Christ. Meditate on that, the gift, the gift of himself, because our God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. As one of my favorite modern hymns declares, some of you know this, you know, we, we sing it together, right? What, what truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Do you remember what comes next? Where is his grace and goodness known? Remember? In our great, we need those overheads more than we realize, in our great Redeemer's blood. That, that's where we know his goodness. So I sing by way of transition here. How do we remember and not forget that goodness in the gospel? Well, we remind each other of it. 
We teach, Paul says, and admonish one another in the wisdom of Christ and him crucified. I exhort you to remember the implications of the gospel. You exhort me to remember the implications of the gospel. We do it through conversation, but we also do it through singing. Through singing. So think about this. When you stand next to me or across the room from me, okay, and you sing, great is thy faithfulness, Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. What is happening in that moment? Did you just have a private little you and Jesus thing? (laughs) Well, hopefully the, the... The word of the gospel was encouraging you personally, power of the spirit, but that was not a private moment, friend. It wasn't. In that moment when you were singing, as you sang this morning, you were teaching and admonishing me to remember and not forget that I am not alone in this world. That there's a God in heaven, a faithful God who never changes who practices steadfast love and faithfulness to those who keep his commands. In that moment, even if you were not on pitch at all, you were instructing me in the most important spiritual realities in the universe. Governing realities that have something to say about what I do with my time, my money, my my abilities. You were reminding me, even if you were singing as an 11, 12-year-old who hopes Nobody heard your voice today. God was using you to remind me that he's worthy of my trust because he's a faithful God and that I was made to worship the Lord who laid down his life for me. And so guess what will mark a church? Think about this. That's, that's centered on the faithfulness of God and the gospel. A church that sings song lyrics week after week that are all about the glory of Christ. And a church that diligently instructs and admonishes one another through our singing, through our conversation, to remember Jesus, run hard after him. What kind of church will that be like? Paul tells us, At the end of verse 16, it will be a church filled with thankfulness in the heart to God. That's the mark. Not because life is easy. Not because relationships in the church are easy, trouble-free. No, because we know, because of the gospel, Jesus is sovereign and loving and wise. He's worthy of our trust. So don't, don't presume, friend. Here's the warning. Don't presume the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. It is possible for you to yes and amen everything I have said for the last 10 minutes. And yet when you walk out those doors, none of that to dwell richly in you. That should sober you, okay? Test yourself. Could could the people closest to you honestly say that, that what characterizes your speech is gratitude and thankfulness? Is that what marks your your words? 
If it's not, the, the answer isn't, well, I just need to think more on the bright side or, or become a little bit more glass half full or, you know, be positive. No, no, the answer is to be a people saturated with the word of Christ. That's the answer. Point number three, verse 17. We'll end with this. And it is a fitting ending because Paul concludes his list with an instruction that, that really does kind of grab all the virtues that came before it and all the virtues that didn't make it into these verses. Remember that this is not exhaustive, like, okay, I've got six things and then I'm good. This is illustrative of the kind of actions, attitudes consistent with our identity in Christ. And so he says in verse 17, whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. It's like Paul won't let go of the giving thanks thing. Do you see that? It's that important. But here's what I want you to see in verse 17. Notice how utterly comprehensive Paul is. What's he say? Whatever you do, word or deed, do do everything. There's no downtime or offline time or me time. Jesus lays claim to every part of you, Christian. All the time, every situation, all, all your thoughts, all your attitudes, all your feelings, all of that, Paul says, must be submitted to his lordship. Because either Jesus is Lord of it all, or as some of you have heard, it's so true, he's not Lord at all. It's all of it or not Lord at all. And the decision you make there will not change who God is, thankfully, but it will determine how he relates to you. Whether he is for you and with you as a, as a chosen, holy, and beloved son or daughter, or, or is he against you and far from you because you refuse to lay down your pride and, and submit to his authority. To, to do everything in Jesus' name means to think and feel and act as his representative with his heart, his character, his attitude, and his priorities. And, and it really does give us a, a very practical question to ask when we're trying to figure out, okay, pastor, what, what does living out my identity in Christ, being true to who I am in Christ, look like in a given situation? Well, here's a great way to think about it, F.F. Bruce. But the question may be asked, what is the Christian thing to do here? You ever found yourself confronted with that? What in the world is the Christian thing to do here? Can I do this without compromising my Christian confession? Can I do it, that is to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus, whose reputation is at stake in the conduct of his known followers? And here's the key. And can I thank God the Father through him for the opportunity of doing this thing that I'm about to do? That's the test. That's the test in so many gray areas of life. Can you thank God for what you are watching or typing or saying? 
If you do that, if you think that, if you watch that, if you type that, are you representing God well? That's the test. And and Paul's admonitions, he gives thanks to the Father through the Son, takes us right back to Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's, he's reminding us at the end here that, that the only way we, we can have access to God and, and experience the joy of drawing near to him in grateful worship is through the work Jesus did for us, friends. That, that he's our mediator. He, he's our way of approach. We, we cannot saunter into the presence of the holy with a pile of Christian virtues and live. You have to be cleansed. You have to be restored. You, you have to have your garments washed in the blood of the lamb. You have to come with a righteousness that is greater than all your seeming good works combined. That's how you have to come. John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except through me. But, but if you do come through him, brothers and sisters, if, if you approach the Father through faith in the Son, trusting his life, death, resurrection to, to make you right with God, well, then you can approach him with a glorious confidence A full assurance knowing what? That your faithful redeemer, Jesus Christ, has already atoned for all the imperfections in your thanksgiving. All all the sins that stain our worship. I mean, think about this. We, We not only need cleansed from what we know is wrong, we need cleansed from the sin in what we think is right. We need salvation there too. (laughs) I'm not saying it's impossible to please the Lord. Don't hear that. I'm saying it's only ever possible to please the Lord through the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. That's the point. A a blood that that washes even our, our most seemingly righteous deeds done in his name and, and makes them too acceptable in God's sight. So we act as a people devoted to the name of Christ, thankful because of Jesus, that we really and truly can live in a way that pleases the Lord. Remember the big picture, my friends. This whole list. The gospel that establishes our new identity in Christ. It requires and enables a new kind of life in Christ. Jesus is the one that makes new kinds of life possible. So how do we love one another? Through hearts ruled by the peace of Christ. How do do we practice thankfulness in our relationships? Through hearts saturated with the word of Christ. How How do we please the Lord in all our thoughts, feelings, and actions? By living in a way, we're doing everything in the name of Christ. That the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of Christ, those things are what make new life in Christ possible. Feel the weight of that. There, there can be no true loving 
no enduring gratitude, and no life pleasing to the Lord apart from those things. Which is just another way of saying there can be no practice of Christian virtue apart from the gospel. Ever. So let us clothe ourselves with Christ our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, and let us remember we can only do that because he first clothed us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help to put these things on. To work through this list last Sunday and this morning is, in so many ways, Father, to to be reminded both of the, the glory of our identity, who you've made us to be in you, Jesus, and at the same time, all the ways that, that we have yet to, to live in a way that's true to who we are. And so we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to remember our identity and to not just loop around in an endless cycle of trying harder to put on these virtues, but, but to remember the root from which they come. We pray, Holy Spirit, that the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts. We pray that the word of the gospel would dwell richly in us and we, we pray you would empower us to do all that we do in your name representing you well. Do that for your glory, we ask, Father. Amen.